This craft had a streamlined configuration suitable for aerodynamic flight, but no intakes, exhaust, wings, or control surfaces. In fact, it appeared not to have an engine, fuel tanks, or fuel. But what this is, is you're officially allowed to tell us that the United States government has in its possession a craft of unknown origin, and you were able to access the inside. Is that correct? The wording that you're, you read is correct. Ah, you're going beyond the wording. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm asking you, did yes, that meeting I'm... happen? And oh, is it course. true? And it's true. Yes. yes. Okay, so you, you're, you're telling us, you told us, because you were allowed to tell us, that our government has a UFO in its possession and has been able to access the inside of it, right? Yes. Welcome back, everybody, to Wicked Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. And on the show tonight, we're going to speak a little bit about that uh, line you just heard. <laughs> Mind blown, huh? Well, somewhat. Um, that is pretty impressive journalism by Jeremy Corbell there. Uh, I've got to give him credit. But um, does anybody doubt that we... Is anybody doubting at this point that we have craft that we're back engineering? And why do we so desperately need to hear it from the government? And why does the government hold it back? Let's be honest. At this point, they have so many satellites in space. If anything's flying in our atmosphere, they can track it from the moment it enters to the moment it leaves. Or maybe they can't. Maybe there's a place they can go where they can't track them with the satellites that they have. And that's what we're going to talk about on the show tonight. Enjoy. We want to talk a little bit tonight about episode 40 of the weaponized podcast with Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp. They had Dr. James Lekatsky on the episode. It was sort of kind of self-promotion because Knapp and Lekatsky got together and wrote a book recently uh, the second Skinwalker book. So he was having him on to talk about stuff that is obviously in that book. But on that episode, he comes out with a pretty incredible revelation. They have him on. He basically says the U.S. has a captured UFO and that they are back engineering this thing to try to build their own craft. Now, what's important about that is he had to clear this with the Pentagon to say that. So they knew he yeah. was going to say it. 
that is information that's not completely in the book. It's inferred, but it's not completely in the book. And this was a brand new revelation. Corbell kind of characterized it as a nuclear bomb going off in the UFO world. I don't know if it's that. Uh, I think we all kind of realize that there are crash craft that are being back engineered. But for a gentleman like Lekatsky, who has been a lifelong member of the Department of Defense off and on and also worked for private contractors uh, who deal with the Department of Defense and deal with the military, for him to come forward and say that is pretty incredible. Yeah, and, you know, if, if our audience isn't tracking, it's not like he's uh, some sort of UFO nut. He's literally a rocket scientist. Yes, that's exactly what he is. You know, um, I find him extremely credible. Like, there's no vetted needed, but... To me, you know, again, I agree with you. I wouldn't describe it as, you know, like a nuclear bomb of disclosure, but I'd say it's on par, if not more credible than even Grush. And I'm not trying to discredit Grush by any means, but it's literally, it was as big of a bomb drop as Grush, yet it got no media attention whatsoever. Yeah, I would Um, characterize it as the highest level government official to ever confirm that we are back engineering craft off-world craft yeah. I, think, I think that's fair to say right i mean he is the highest level former government government official to ever confirm that and also confirm it with you know an okay confirming it with the pentagon yeah got the pentagon <laughs> stamp of approval so unless it's legitimate <laughs> disinformation then it can only be official you know pretty incredible um, yes, it is pretty wild. It's an interesting interview because he drops a lot of Easter eggs in the interview. And I got to give those guys credit. Although we all know how this show feels about Jeremy. I got to yeah. give him credit. <laughs> they did a fantastic job with this interview. And Jeremy specifically, he asked a lot of really good pointed questions. And I think Lekatsky is dying to tell his whole story. Mm-hmm. But being a guy who wants to maintain all his clearances and not burn any of his bridges. Uh, he is smart enough to not do that, but he drops an incredible amount of Easter eggs all through that interview and basically coaches the audience up during it and says, look, you're going to have to read between the lines. But one of the things that he says during this interview uh, to Corbell and Knapp when they are questioning him about when did we get this craft, you know, how did we get it, blah, blah, blah. It goes on for a few more seconds, and then he says, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why did we have such a high-level meeting with Brazilian officials? Mm-hmm. And they basically don't react to that, which I thought was odd. They um, did in the next episode, like kind of when I guess they revisited the interview, they probably listened to themselves, maybe didn't catch those Easter eggs the first time around. Right. Because I didn't. You told me about it, and I had to go back and listen to it as well. And yeah. he definitely infers that, you know, he doesn't outright say we got it from Brazil, but he says we got it from Brazil. Right. And I think, you know, what he's probably talking about is he's probably talking about Virginia. That's probably what he's talking about, that craft. Mm-hmm. So that's a really well-documented case. Uh, you know, James Fox has that documentary out about it, and... um it's been talked about a lot, but there's other cases that haven't been talked about uh, as much in Brazil. And I think a really underrated one is the Colaris UFO flap of the 70. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to recount it for everybody. 
and kind of go through it. But what's interesting about it is I think Garrett and I are starting to put together some pieces here and some common threads and starting to come up with a pattern when it comes to cases that are close encounters of the third kind or above. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about Clars, Brazil. Let me drop back for a minute here. Uh, So it's important for everybody to know politically what was going on in Brazil in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, There was a president of Brazil in the 60s, late 60s, named Goulart. Uh, He was a millionaire rancher. And one of the things that he fell in love with was Castro and communism. As we all know, in the 60s, during the Cold War, that was a no-no for the U.S. to have somebody with a pretty good control of oil, coffee, fruits that we would get in the wintertime flirting with communism. That wasn't going to stand. So, essentially... And it was damn near a dictatorship. Yes. So, essentially, in the late 60s, we orchestrated a coup, a military coup, down in Brazil to keep Brazil from turning communist. To the point where we even had the forest all off the coast. Yeah, we uh, is in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> backing, ready to, full of military, ready to jump on uh, the Brazilian soil and help the military take Goulart out. So Goulart leaves, goes to Uruguay. We convince the Brazilian people that this is the best thing for them, and we back this military government. Uh, and it is a completely run military government. Yeah, and we have our forces stick around to an extent. Yes, we've got our hands in everything. Basically, Brazil at that point is being run by the U.S. and specifically the CIA. Yeah, again, 1977. That was 67 when that happened. So this is 10 years before the flap. So, oh, yeah. yeah. You're so absolutely it, right. Yeah, in August of 1977, there's a town called Colaris, and it is in it is a coastal town. And it is close to where the Amazon comes out up in the north. I don't know if they call them counties, what, what they call them, provinces, whatever. But the, the province is called Prato. Uh, so that's where it is. But its general location is right at the mouth of the Amazon River. And it's a very small town. There's 2,000 people. The economy is driven by fishing and farming. Uh, there's one church, you know, one priest, one doctor, one of those little towns. Yeah, it's kind of a one-stop town. Yes. But. Again, close to the coast. So what starts to happen in August of 1977 is that fishermen who are coming back uh, from fishing are coming back and they start to see these lights over the sea. And they're all different colors, yellow, green, red. You know, they're moving at incredible speeds. So they come home with these stories about how they're seeing these lights out at sea. So another local resident uh, recalls taking a walk along the see with his wife at about eight o'clock at night near the church mm-hmm. at the, near the seafront and he looks out the sea and sees a yellow light coming from the sea <coughs> heads straight over their heads and goes inland so that's all also in august so what's basically happening is they're starting to see these lights but the place that they're seeing them is coming from the sea so we we go a little bit further as it gets later into august some people start talking about these things actually coming into their room. Yeah. Now, um, not like a classic UFO abduction type situation. They're almost describing these like glowing orbs, more or less. Right. right? So there's the big lights in the sky and the craft that they see in the sky, but there's these smaller And then the smaller, orbs. yeah. Right. So two and, different types of lights. 
Yeah, I got one guy here, uh, Carlos Cardoso de Paula. I got his um, little story here. Everybody else was asleep. I was still having my last smoke when suddenly a ball of fire entered our house up near the ridge pole. It started shooting around and around the room and then finally came close to my hammock. It ran up my right leg as far as the knee without touching my skin. I watched with much curiosity as it then moved across to the other leg. And then I started to feel feeble and sleepy. My cigarette fell from my hand and I came to and let out a yell. The fireball quickly vanished and everybody woke up. I think it was searching for a vein in my body, but didn't manage to do so or find one. As its brightness grew, I felt a sort of heat coming from it. So that's one of the residents there. They start reporting these orbs actually coming into their rooms. Some of them are feeling like a tingling sensation. Mm -hmm. So they come up with a little name for this thing and they call it Shupa Shupa, which means suck, suck. So they're basically, because they're so tired after their encounters with these things, they're thinking. I, I know later even some victims, you know, almost described like puncture marks around the area. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're actually going to come to that. They they um they have these you know uh, lethargic feelings afterwards, and they come up with the shupa shupa, and basically it suck suck is basically what it is. And they're thinking that these things are some sort of vampire because if you think about it, they deal with vampire bats down there, right? Yeah, so that's yeah, exactly. what their their general feeling is. So it progresses as August goes into September, more and more of these type of stories. Uh, people reporting, like you said, puncture marks, and they start going to the local doc- doctor. Uh, she's in mm-hmm. her 20s, and her name is Carvalho. And she's just the one doctor And she's the, the whole area. only doctor in the town. So they start going to her, and they start telling her these stories. And at first, she thinks, all right, these people are just imagining this. This is crazy. And she just starts documenting a lot of it, thinking, that, you know, it's only going to be a few cases and go away. It progresses into people actually being out during night walking around and being chased by these lights in the sky. And they all report getting hit with a beam. And what the beam does is it basically paralyzes them. And they start to feel sleepy, basically have the chills, they're lethargic, that kind of stuff. And I got another story here from uh, Manuel Mantos de Souza. I was sleeping. It was about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. Went through the gaps in the shack wall over the door. I saw that rays of bright light penetrated with great intensity. I got up, and opening the door, I saw a strange object standing 5 meters more or less from me. And inside, a couple laughing out loud as if they were making fun of me. There was red rays coming out of the object, and they were chaining me. It was tough to move. But even chained by the rays that reached me, I quickly went into the house picking picking up my shotgun. I pointed it towards the, and he's, he's got this in parentheses, ship, and pulled the trigger. But to my surprise, the gun did not fire. At this point, the right side of my body started to go numb. That was when I screamed for my wife and children, and with all the panic in the house, the device disappeared without making the noise disappear into the sky. So now we've got these encounters where people are actually seeing beings, and they're sort of kind of communicating with them through looks. Yeah, it's no longer just lights at this point. It's, you know, full-on nuts and bolts craft. And like you said, the guy said he's seen a, an entire couple, right? Yeah, and that was the weirdest thing about this particular story. He said he saw a couple. Now... Yeah, not like a couple aliens, but like a couple, as in like, you know, almost like right. a husband and wife situation, you know? And there's no other... The, nobody thought to get him to clarify this story. Like, were you talking about a couple... 
male and female aliens where you're talking about a couple like a humanoid couple or a human couple. Uh, but basically these, these guys are seeing these creatures and they're always in twos and they're in these, these craft that sort of kind of look like upside down corks uh, that have a window along the front. And then there's a single rocket or propulsion type device on the bottom. And this case has incredible documentation. Something about the, the Kolaris case is that there are thousands of pages of documentation. Yeah. There was over 55 hours of Super 8 film. There was classified documents out the wazoo, over 500 photos, a ton of different interviews. And actually, if you look hard enough online, you can actually find a site. I can't remember what the name of the, I think the ufologist's name is Pratt is his last name, but he actually takes all this information, which eventually does leak out, but he takes it and he uh, actually translated it into English and it's available online. So yeah. hopefully I can find that and link it here in the show. Yeah, it's so in anyway, the uh, National Archives of Brazil. And there is yeah. a translated version. Yeah. So basically what happens is these these cases start getting crazy and um, people are stopping. They're, they're completely stopping fishing. They're not going out. They're not going out at night. They're afraid to tend their vegetable gardens. Yeah, the way it was described almost was that people were so scared and seeing these things so often that the entire community was banding together in single houses almost, where you'd have like a house with like you know thirty to sixty people. Yep, sleeping and they were on watches basically. Like the guys stayed up all night. The men stayed up all night. And with shotguns and waited for these things in case they came. And here's the reason why. As this advances, um, the objects start losing interest in males. And they start, 75% of the attacks are against females. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I've got one here from Aurora Fernandez. Uh, She talks about, she was an 18-year-old girl. And she talks about uh, an encounter that she had in her home. I was terrified. I called my mother, who was already asleep like the rest of my family in the house. But before my mom arrived, a strong red light surrounded me and left me paralyzed. At the same time, I felt very fine punctures on my breasts. Then I fell to the ground and passed out. So this is where the Dr. Cavallo starts finding these puncture wounds. And basically, they're on women. They're always the same pattern. Uh, As a matter of fact, in a documentary that Garrett and I watched to prepare for the show, there's a picture of them. They look a lot like the polio vaccine needles. They really that, do. There was a polio vaccine. I don't know if kids still get it. I don't, I, I don't know how it's administered, but I know that when I got it, uh, it wasn't just a single needle. It yeah, was it's like, almost like a scrape. It's, it's, yes. And there were five prongs on this thing when you got mm-hmm. it. So after they gave it to you, there was a little round circle with five little prongs in it. That's sort of kind of what this, this looks like. So as it starts attacking more and more women, that's when the men band together and they, they go to these houses. So things are, are terrible. People aren't going to church. They're not going to their jobs. They're not fishing. Food is short, you know, and just in general, it's a mess. So the doctor starts reporting this to the federal health officials. They basically tell her, well, just tell these people that they're imagining all this. So yeah, well, they're in the same spot that she was in. Because they don't know what to believe. You know, at first she just had a few cases here and there. But then she has literally the town lining up outside her office to get looked at. Because people are having symptoms on par with like radiation, burns, and poisoning along with these puncture marks. So now she's a believer. 
and it's up to her to convince that you know the Brazilian healthcare system, yeah. basically, to do something about it. And they're like, "What? Not nah, selling? They're crazy." Yeah, here's a here's a uh, quote from her one of her interviews in this paperwork. All of them had suffered lesions to the face or the thoracic area. The lesions, looking like radiation injuries, excuse me, radiation injuries, began with intense reddening of the skin in the affected area. Later, the hair would fall out and the skin would turn black. There was no pain, only a slight warmth. One also noticed these small puncture marks in the skin. So, well, that's when. Uh, yo, I'm sorry, ahead. Mike. No, go ahead. Are buddy. you going to talk about that lady that was like basically frozen? Yeah, yeah. Gonna, okay. We're going to move on to that next. Sorry, because I'm going to mention it then. That's kind of how. Crazy. Yeah, that's kind of how it, it it intensifies. So, you know, this wasn't just Kolaris. There were some other little towns around that were having some, you know, sightings, but not as much uh, stuff going on as Kolaris did. There was a town next door called Belim. And what happens is that mayor actually has a sighting of a light, a ship. Uh, it's a mass sighting, a group sighting, a bunch of people out in the street screaming that this light is coming. And he goes outdoors and he sees this light. So now you've got two mayors, local mayors, uh, talking about this. You've got her reporting back to the federal government. And it's not long before the Brazilian government taps the, on the shoulder of the Brazilian Air Force and says, hey, we better get out there and, and take a look at this stuff. So they're right in the middle of doing that when what happens is two women are attacked by this beam of light. Um, one of the women comes in and she's so far gone at that point that the Dr. Gravio basically tells her to go to Belim to the hospital, but she soon dies in intensive care uh, because she's so far gone when she gets to Gravio's office. Another woman comes in. She is in the back of a police cruiser, and she's so stiff that they can't shut the door of the cruiser. Her legs will not bend at the knee or at the ankle or anything along those lines, and she is just rigid as rigid could be. She's got shallow breathing. She can barely breathe. Corvallo once again sends her to the hospital. She soon dies. And both of these women are diagnosed as dying from stroke. Basically, what happens is their blood stops flowing inside their body. So this thing is int intensifying. <clears throat> so that's when all the local officials get together, councilmen, the mayors, all that good stuff. Corvallo, you know, the Brazilian health officials, and they tell the Air Force to get down there and, you know, look into this. So we move to the second stage of this, which is uh, the Air Force's investigation. The local Air Force base is in Belim, which is the next town over. Essentially what happens is they send a group of about six. I don't know why there was such a varied variance here, but I think I know why. Uh, the official word is that they send between six and 12 <laughs> officials to go take, you know, go figure out what's going on. Yeah. So... Why would there be such a wide swing, do you think? I think I know why. Um, probably, I, I don't have a good theory on that, but I'm interested to hear what you're thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking probably there were a good bunch of Americans in that group, specifically CIA. Oh, for sure. sure. That's why I think that, you know, there were there might have officially been six guys going down, but then when the group shows up, there's about 12. And, you know, the, the records reflect that. Um, the people there talked about how they thought that Americans were embedded in that little group that went down to investigate. So the first night these guys get there, they actually have an experience. They go out to the field. They break up into two groups. One colonel, Colonel Hollande, who is a pretty 
enigmatic figure in this whole thing. He um, talks about how he thought, because it was a fellow colonel who gave him this assignment, and they called it Operation Prado. But he talks about how he thought he was joking around with them, and he says, I really thought he was playing a practical joke on me. So they go down there, and they had just have a helicopter. They are armed with cameras. That's it. They don't bring any guns. First night, they break up into two groups, and they decide that they're going to go to the two locations where these lights are seen coming from the sea the most. The two groups are out in the field communicating via radio, and this light shoots overhead. They estimated that it was at about 10,000 feet and that it was going, and I don't know where these guys get these numbers from, but they said that they thought it was going 30,000 miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> like at a certain, estimate. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, like it could be, it could be a hundred thousand miles an hour. But they just talk about how it made just incredible, crazy maneuvers. It never got close enough for them to see any detail, but they definitely saw that there were lights. They radio over to the other group, and the other group said, "Yeah, we're looking in the same spot, and we can see it." And there exists uh, some photos from that and some film. Uh, at that point, they had just a sixteen millimeter camera with them, so they took some film with it. Essentially. They, on the first night they have this this episode. So they settle down in town and they start interviewing people. And they're interviewing more and more people and they're hearing more and more of these horrible stories. Essentially what happens is they start to report back and tell this colonel who wants this whole thing to go away at Blame Air Force Base. They're like, look, there's, there's really actually something to this. And he's rushing them along, rushing them along, trying to get them to just, you know, convince these people that they're all crazy and get back to the base. But every night they're seeing more and more stuff. Eventually what happens is there's another group, which is a spy group from Brazil. Um, I think officially they are SLM, they're called. I don't know what that stands for. But they come out in like late October. And again, on cue, the first night these guys are there, the heavies, these things appear out of nowhere again. And this time, uh, the object is about 300 feet above their head. It's supposedly about 30 yards wide, and it's cylindrical, or excuse me, it's saucer-shaped, and there is a yellow light in the middle of it shining down on all these Brazilian spies, probably at that point some Americans, you know, some CIA ops, and then also these six guys who are investigating this thing. As they're sitting there, the light pulses on and off, on and off. And it, it cycles through this about six times where it just, it grows in intensity to the point where they talk about it. You could probably pick up a needle off the ground with the light that this thing was given off. Wow. And then what happens is at the end, after it does it six times, a uh, blue light replaces the yellow light. And it's they describe it as the most beautiful blue they've ever seen. It's kind of how they describe it. And this, this craft shoots off. And he says it's basically, when you're imagining the speed, just imagine it, it almost blinked out of existence. So there is, at that point when the spies came down, they had brought better cameras. So there is super eight-footed. <laughs> Of of that happening. Oh, no kidding. Yes. So someone somewhere has Super 8 footage and photo, photographs of that happening. So well, we um, know who has all the case files. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get around to that next. <laughs> so essentially, what happens is this um, this Colonel Hollande who went down there with the thought that you know this is just a bunch of bullshit. Um, he's really at this point taking this thing seriously and realizes that you know something really really malevolent is going on. You know 
people are still getting attacked from, from, you know, now and then, but it's mostly females and a lot of females talking about how, you know, tissue is either blood or tissue is either taken out of their breast or they are zapped with this, you know, beam that basically paralyzes them and they go to sleep and they wake up sometime later. So that's what goes on. And eventually what happens is this, uh, Colonel Hollande, he is there one night and has an experience of his own. Mm -hmm. He is sleeping in his bunk when he wakes up and there's a unbelievable flash of light in the room. He's like sleeping on his bunk and doesn't turn around. And these arms grab him from behind and they hug him. (laughs) And he basically feels these arms go around him. And this um, voice that sounds like it's computer generated in Portuguese, which is what they speak there, says to him, look, don't be afraid. I'm not going to harm you. So he's able to turn around and wiggle around a little bit. And he sees a being that's uh, a meter to a meter and a half tall and has a suit on. It is a baggier astronaut type suit is how he describes it. And it's gray. And he says that the being has a lead mask on. That's what he says. He said it's a lead mask, but he drew a picture of this thing. And if you saw a picture of it, essentially you would say that it probably was what we would think of as a classic gray alien with the almond shaped eyes black eyes and it had sort of kind of like a hood on that's what this it looks more like that than it had a lead mask so he may have just been so wigged out and freaked out about what this thing could possibly look like that he probably just missed the detail that that this supposed lead mask was actually his face and again he's in like a basically a rear naked chokehold being pacified by this thing so he probably didn't get a great look at it and he talks about how he couldn't really move (coughs) as well as he wanted to move so i mean this guy's a colonel in the air force right I mean, if he you figure he would want to capture this thing or take it out, and he he just can't move. Essentially, he struggles a little bit, and the thing disappears. So he immediately reports back to the head of the base, the guy that gave him the assignment in the first place, and they pull the ripcord on this project, Operation Prada, and they pull them all out of there. This is in January of 1978. So from August of 77 to January of 78, you've Mm -hmm. got these incredible um, stories and incredible uh, happenings. Yeah, flat isn't even the word. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely more than just a traditional UFO flap. I mean, there was a lot going on in that. And I think, yeah, and I think amazes me about it is is the the ballsiness of what went on here. I mean, humans were attacked. Um, There was obviously DNA or blood or whatever, some tissue taken out taken from the local population there had no problem appearing in front of people in the flesh right it's one of those things where like the reins were off you know it's not like your typical sighting over like oklahoma you know or yeah i mean these things were not afraid to you know make contact be seen be filmed be recorded they were out there with absolutely no fear they were obviously on some type of mission uh to do something um collect something test something whatever they were doing and they had absolutely no problem doing it even to the point where they they must have known that the people that showed up to investigate it were military, okay? And they still had no problem showing themselves and revealing themselves to those people. Yeah. So, there, like I said, there were thousands of pages on this. There are 55 hours of Super 8 film, uh, 500 photos, 
and all this stuff basically was classified at that point. Nobody knew about it. Um, nobody was reading these reports except for military eyes and probably the CIA. Um, so what happens is they pull the plug on the operation and they pull these guys back. And at that point, the official story become that everybody imagined this and that it was because they saw these lights because of it was a, a trick of the, the sky with a new lighthouse that had been recently put into commission. So that's what these people were saying. That's the official story. That's what they start pumping out to the newspaper. Well, obviously, the doctor, the mayor, the people who had these experiences in the town, they're pretty pissed about it. It. But the people that are the most pissed about it are those six members of the Brazilian Air Force that went down there and had all these experiences and saw all this stuff going on. And now, you know, they, they turn around and the government is saying it's a lighthouse. So, you know, they're good soldiers. They get out of the area. They don't talk. And time goes on. So there is a trio of ufologists down in Brazil uh, that were pretty good ufologists, guys that put together some pretty good groups. And there's a lot of UFO stories down in Brazil and there's a lot of believers down in Brazil. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> so one of them is a guy by the name of A.J. Brevard. As time goes by, uh, in the late 90s, these guys that were on that investigation are getting, you know, older and older and some information starts getting leaked to Mr. Brevard. So the first few pages of this volume of information, this top secret investigation starts coming out little bit by little bit, 1997. So that gives the Brazilian population the impetus to sort of kind of ask for disclosure from the government. Yeah, because you got to so think, if it's 1990, what, you said 1996? Yep. That's when the uh, Varginius stuff going. Right. That was another thing that happened that sort of kind of gave it an, an impetus to the, the Varginius story. So 36,000 people sign a petition saying that they, you know, want to know what's going on and they want, you know, this information out there in the open. This operation starts to gain steam and what happens is in 2005, there's a new general that comes into the Air Force in Brazil. He sort of kind of has the idea that, you know what, this information really should be shared. Not all of it, all at once to panic people and to ruin people's privacy, but, you know, to bring it forward and at least have people know what that, that there's something going on here and that, you know, they should be concerned. So by 2005, all this information is leaked out. The whole report comes out, um, except for the film. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't come out. But all the documents themselves and all the interviews and all that other good stuff, that surfaces and starts getting disseminated out into the world. Yeah. And, and not just Kolaris, but also Vargin. Right, right. So what happens is in 2009, Bass, which at that point was Bigelow, uh, advanced aerospace uh, space studies. I think that's what it's called. They, yeah, I can they, never remember if it's studies or systems. Yeah, but it's definitely Bigelow advanced aerospace. Right. They go down and they visit with many of the members of the military, and then also a lot of these guys who are, um, you know, had studied and and been out on the investigation, and a few of the ufologists as well. And they have this big conference down there. They had the big conference in 2005 when all this stuff came out. So they had a smaller conference with Bass. 2009 and essentially what happens is bigelow buys all this information he essentially purchases it sends you know guys down there with a nice big suitcase full of money i would imagine and there are pictures online of these guys 
flashing their business cards with all these Air Force representatives, Brazilian Air Force representatives. So essentially, Bass buys this information. Now, if you think about that in a timeline of things, the way this stuff goes on, that's in 2009. And like Garrett had said, Varginha also went on, okay, at that point. And when did we start with the OSAP program? What was that, 2012? Yeah, almost immediately okay. following. Right. So almost immediately following, right, in time to at least put a group together, OSAP starts. And who's involved with OSAP? Lukatsky, as well as a whole cast of characters, enough to make a murder board interesting, you know, with yeah, strings yeah. if you put them to all these guys. So that brings us full circle back to the Lukatsky interview and the whole Brazilian thing and talking about back engineering an aircraft. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting because it, he doesn't say, he just says, well, think about it. When did, you know, when did we get the craft? He, he doesn't outright say, is it a Calaris craft? Is it a Virginia craft? Because that was supposedly, there was a crash there as well. Right, but he, he essentially is, that's the context part of the interview where he, says well now you have to you have to think you have to read between the lines here why did we go down to brazil and i think i don't i can't really because i think he did work for bass for a while too didn't he man uh, did he have some affiliation with bass at some point well he, he would have he would have had to have known him because of yeah. all sap and big low right so at that point he might have been either at that meeting or responsible for sending those guys down to that meeting where they purchased all this information and maybe they and didn't just buy the information maybe they bought something else you know definitely could be definitely could be or you know we already had it because we all know if you follow along that the bass uh, facility was re-engineered uh, for security purposes in 2012 i think right wasn't it 2012 when that was redone actually i'm not sure that could have been that could have been right in 2009 yeah i mean it follows the timeline right i mean it, it, you know they they well no they they got the contract remember they got the osap contract and that's when they redid the okay, security yeah, so at that bass well. facility so it would have been post 2000. Okay. So I think Calaris and Brazil and Virginia, uh, given that interview and given what was talked about in it, um, is probably the impetus for this back engineered air. That's back engineered crap. That's my personal opinion um, at this point. Yeah. I again, think that's why Lukatsky said it. I didn't hear it right away. It was, you told me about it and I had to go back and listen to it. And I, I'll be damned. I just missed it the first time, but it, it's definitely there. And who knows what else is going to come out about this, but you know, yeah. Yeah. It will, he talked about so many things that we haven't even got into on his show that are yeah. insanely interesting. There's a couple things, too, I should mention, too. Um, Colonel Holanda, um, he comes forward in 97 and does that. Inter- he does an actual interview with uh, A.J. Brevard, who's like the Stanton Friedman of Brazil. He comes forward and does the interview. You can actually catch that interview on YouTube, too. You can take a look at it. So Holanda comes forward and he does this interview. And shortly afterwards, he commits suicide. And it's a very controversial suicide. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, A.J. Brevard said that he thought it was legitimately a suicide. But makes you wonder, you know, did he get Epstein here for coming forward with all this stuff at that point? But um, so so that's, that's a what thing it sounds that happened. Like it, wasn't he hung with his uh, own bathrobe strap or like the yes. belt of your bathrobe? Yep, the, be- the belt of his bathrobe, he was hung. Yeah, that's kind of um, wild. Yeah, there's a lot of 
better ways if you're a you know ex-military to figure out how to kill yourself a lot more painless ways right than hanging yourself with your own bathrobe strap yeah i mean and then uh you know like you said brevard speculated that it was a suicide but who's to say somebody didn't get to him exactly and tell him to push that narrative you know or you know exactly. you're gonna end up this way yeah or you know we're gonna get you a bath bathrobe strap or buy you a bathrobe yeah yeah i mean essentially right it's you know so that's worth mentioning and then there's another obscure piece of film uh footage film that is out there and i think it's worth mentioning i don't i don't have any idea whether it's been vetted fully like you said the portions of the files were declassified and the rest was leaked pretty but you again there's no the film and the pictures are nowhere to be found right right it's all big mystery yeah and then there was also what i guess about uh, in 2022 ish there was supposed to be this big 30 second uh clip of like super 8 film that was shown one of the entities from the uh virginia crash and if people don't know about that case because we've talked about it a little bit already on the show uh, this we're trying to keep strictly to claris but i mean virginia is definitely tied in uh that moment of contact documentary by james fox is awesome it definitely uh is pretty thorough but again yeah there was supposed to be this 30 second clip of a biological entity that was going to be leaked and i don't know if this is that i'm assuming it could be related it may be the clip but uh it's definitely i didn't know anything about it and i've done research for this ahead of time but when you shared that with me first of all it was insanely hard to find so we'll definitely link it for the show but man i'm telling you it's it's something to see yeah now remember the the person who put it out there they actually they linked that to Kolaris, not Virginia. Yeah, they do. That's yeah, it's actually linked to Kolaris. And what he says is that it may have been a piece of film that Hollande had saved and kept. So that could have been the impetus for Hollande going bye bye. This little clip. If you look at the clip, it's a 30 second clip. The entity that's there is if it's, you know, first of all, it's pre CGI. Okay. If it is indeed from Kolaris, it's pre CGI. Okay. Now it doesn't look like CGI to me. I'm not an expert. Well, what's interesting about it is that it is very much female. <laughs> it has, it yeah. is a, what I would describe as a gray alien type being with breasts. And the other thing that's interesting about it is the back of its head has like a neural link coming up out of the brain and then there are several little other protruding bones down near the base of the spine yeah now i i know what you're saying because the uh narrator definitely pointed it out in the clip um right. i didn't see that i mean he did some heavy speculation on his part saying it's like a neuro oh it's all speculation yeah he says yeah. it's a neural whatever neural link i'll be honest i didn't see any of that shit all i saw was definitely an alien um and it looked good i'm telling you right now it, if you were around in the 90s when that alien autopsy special came out on fox uh that thing looked pretty good to me but this looks way better than that but you tell it's older footage i mean unless somebody's got a serious filter on it because it 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 looks like super 8 film um but nothing in it looks computer generated at all so even if it was a hoax it was you know it was somebody with insane special effects experience that made this thing but i'm telling you right now to me it looks it looks pretty legit yeah now Um, i i got chills looking at that thing man yeah like again like like garrett said this the other thing that's interesting about this
this is that the first time I found it and watched it, I told Garrett about it and he said, oh, you know, send that along to me. And when I went back to look at it the second time, it was incredibly hard to find. <laughs> so, you know, I hope, I, I hope, you know, I did text it to you. I hope you may still have the link or I, I still have the link. I I'm do. Dreading... I, fa- I favorited it. So it's in my, okay. when I go to my YouTube account, it shows up in my favorites, but I'm yeah, telling I'm you always... right now, I put in probably about 15 keywords and I had to scroll <laughs> down through so many videos before it even came up. Um, I, I Googled it the first time, nothing, um, image results, nothing, but literally on YouTube, uh, with all those keywords, I, I eventually found it and it was, it was, it was, a uh, not front and center. Like if you're expecting to just put in some words and hit search and it's going to pop up, that's not the case. So we'll yeah. definitely link that. I know there's, yeah, and you guys sometimes can decide for yourselves. Yeah, yeah, but definitely look at it because I'm telling you. Uh, and I just find it really odd how hard it was to find the second time I saw it. Yeah. You know, and I, I do think we, I, I think we're not going out on a limb here saying that, you know, they can definitely fuck around with algorithms and place stuff at the back of the, at the back of the uh, pile for you to try to find. You know, they can't get rid of it completely, but they can certainly make it hard for you to find. Yeah. And, and it's an interest, interesting piece of, of foot. Yeah. Uh, def- so definitely check that out. Um, yeah. I think we're not it could be back that. It, 30 second clip they were you know teasing a couple years back or last year rather yeah we're not backing it we're not saying it's real <coughs> we're not saying that you know it's part of the record here all we're saying is that somebody put it up on youtube and it's an interesting piece of film yeah so, so take a look at def- it definitely check it out yeah you know decide for yourself like what do you what do you think yeah so that's Kolaris and wanted to talk about one other story by the way that that researcher that has all that stuff online his name is bob pratt it has everything translated in online so if you want to look at it he started the american ufo network back in the day i think his uh you should be able to find it in the wayback machine if it isn't still already so you yeah. can take a look at all this stuff and read some of these reports it's an amazing amount of information and just a and segue I, the, go ahead sorry the other thing i think about this too dude I don't, I don't know about you but i when i when i hear a ufo story from the suburbs the first thing I've, you know, here in America, I first thing I think is a bunch of boring kids. You know what I mean? But when you see a really poor, depressed area like this, have a UFO flap with all this documentation, I tend to give it a little bit more credence. Yeah, you I know? mean, these people were credible. I mean, it was a, it was a small town, but it's not like they were it's not like they were trying to you know invent these stories to yeah, get people tourism. to visit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> come on, visit and get radiation burns. You know? Exactly. But I do find it one thing that you know we haven't talked about yet but it definitely stuck out to me was uh all these people describing describing these beams these beams not beings but beams of light beams. and basically the effects it had on them well i don't i can't remember exactly what year uh travis walton was but that had to be mid seven maybe 76 about that yeah that's about that time and that's exactly that what he was describing you know yep of course yeah. he had the whole abduction thing but as far as the beam that was pretty much spot on and we've we've seen this over and over again with the beams and the radiation burns but i did think it was interesting that there was the smaller balls uh the fireballs basically how they were described that were coming yeah. to people's houses not the actual entities other than you know the one who put my man in a rear naked chokehold right but right uh i thought that was extremely fascinating and it just it, it matches up i guess I, there's something to these beams because there's too many there's too many reports and it's not just brazil or you know travis walton case these these beams of light have to do something i think the different colors mean something yeah yeah but yeah that by the way i mispronounced that uh stanton friedman of brazil the entire time i said it it's actually aj govar so it begins with a g not a bit Sorry. okay so I'll, I'll go back and dub them all now i'm only kidding <laughs> 
Yeah, nah, not it's, do that. it's all good. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, going back through all the sightings, I mean, just Brazil has a super rich history. We all know that. And like I said, we've already talked about the Varginha case on the show prior to this one. But, you know, it, it seems like it all started there right around the same time it started here, July 1947. It's continued to today. But one thing that a lot of these cases have in common is that it, th- these craft aren't shown exactly just flying off into the air. They're all going to the sea and coming from the sea. Exactly. Which brings us to our next story, yeah. um, which you were going to talk about, uh, about a little bit, right? Yeah. So again, in recent news, it's, I would assume like in the past month, but I think this show is probably a couple, three weeks old, but the uh, podcast UFO podcast, I know that's a strange name, but it's actually just called Podcast <laughs> UFO. Yeah. It's pretty famous. One of the better podcast shows out there. Um, yeah. He does a really good job. Yeah. Well, he had a pretty interesting show. He had a diver one. Uh, Future guest of Wicked Garden podcast. Yeah, we. I def, I reached out to him. I hope he gets back to me. You know, hopefully. But uh, his name's Scott Cassell. I'm not sure if it's Cassell or Castle, but he's he is a famous diver. Uh, and when I say famous, he's he's got his own basically people that make diving watches. He has his own special edition watches for these people. Uh, and it's, the name is escaping me right now, and I actually own one. But uh, yeah, he's got fifteen thousand hours of dive time, and I think about ten thousand hours of that are in, uh submersibles. And the other is is all actual dive time. And he's he was ex Navy, then he went to the Army, and then he was a defense contractor. And it got to the point where he just started his own projects. And one of those were this was the Sea Wolf's project. It was basically anti poaching. Um, so what he what he was doing was trying to find this uh, specific fish out in the uh, Sea of Cortez off the west coast of Mexico. Oh, real quick, dude. Yeah. Um, let me run down this guy's uh, bio real quick for everybody yeah okay scott j cassell was born in march 16th 1962 he's an american explorer underwater filmmaker and counterterrorism operative his documentary credits include over 35 programs for the disney channel spike tv discovery animal planet uh bbc and history channel he has over 15,000 hours as a diver and is a united states coast guard qualified submersible pilot with over 900 dives and the sea imagine sea mobile surf submersible he holds the world record for longest distance traveled by a diver 52 miles in 9.5 hours he's 61 he lives in la and like you were saying he uh he was a welder as a teenager uh he always liked to dive he was into squids and he actually um had that amazing he's the one who filmed that giant squid yeah but he's also served as a sniper uh an anti-piracy consultant and, and a not just a sniper but he has more dives logged as a sniper than any navy seal amazing you know uh, i mean the guys he he's a really cool guy i mean he's got he's the dive story. instructor for he's a dive instructor that instructs special he has 20 years of experience with close closed circuit rebreathers he's also an experienced cave diver and that cave diving is crazy um because you make one mistake and you're done yeah and here here he is he's identify the killers of marine endangered species so there's this fish i know you may have been about to talk about it yeah well i I believe it's called the tatua i'm not sure exactly it starts with the t that's definitely i believe it's tatua but it's a fish that's been overfished and it's so rare that it's literally worth its weight in coke so down in that area you have uh you have literally 
a lot of people on a terrorist watch list. So you have Middle Easterns involved in the basically the black market for this fish, and China w- will buy them like crazy. So cartels are also involved. It's literally these fish have become so rare because they've been overfished that they are worth their weight in cocaine if you can catch wow. them. So they are poached. And Scott's Sea Wolf program is an anti-poaching program. So what he was doing was he was actually I, I don't know if you want to talk more about his background. The guy's so interesting. I mean he's he's been attacked by squid. It's it's crazy. But uh yeah he just from his podcast that podcast appearance alone. I mean he came off super genuine, uh super likable and I don't consider many people like true modern explorers or adventurers and I absolutely consider this guy um, absolutely as like high high praise in my book definitely. But uh yeah so what he was doing was he was out there he was trying to photograph these fish um try to document for the anti-poaching program he was running with seawolves and basically where they were at in the sea of cortez is uh it's very it's active there's you have plate movement going on there's uh thermogenics you have these thermo vents at the bottom of the ocean that are giving off uh basically gas and heat to the point where if, if you're over it if you actually are diving on the ocean floor and you go over one of these things it could basically boil you in your suit before you know it wow so pretty dangerous but what it is is those thermal vents basically attract a certain type of shrimp and these shrimp is what the specific fish he was going after feed off of so he was he eventually gets a video of that fish which is cool but that's why he's there and he's there with another diver at the same time yeah one other guy right and uh the story he tells is that it basically he they're on a slope as well so again it's a, it's a thermal vented slope he his uh dive partner was probably at 200 feet on the ocean floor but since it was sloping he was a little bit further down and what he was doing was uh basically looking for these vents so that he could look for the shrimp plumes and then find these fish well he was going further down the slope and what he has is with them is a camera and he calls it a wing but uh basically it's, it's a mount for your camera and also a lighting rig and he designed it himself oddly enough in case there was great whites he could shove it in her mouth basically which is bananas to to avoid an attack <laughs> Um, that's interesting in itself, but he, so he's diving along the bottom of the floor, going deeper and deeper down the slope to where I think their target, uh, depth is 400 feet or 400 meters. Perhaps I can't remember. I think it's feet, but it was 400 feet. Yeah. And what he's doing is, uh, just again, looking for these thermal vents and the shrimp plumes, but he has the lights on. And, uh, at one point he is looking, he describes it as snow blindness because you're probably seeing a lot of little particles and stuff floating past your, uh, the lights when there's nothing in front of you that's all you're gonna see it's it's, it's gonna look like snow And out of the corner of his eye, he uh, he notices a straight edge, which scares him because he believes it's an anti-diving drone, which absolutely exists. And thought maybe the, the uh, people going after this fish were sending an anti-diver drone after him, which I'm, I'm not saying that he's being extremely paranoid, but those do exist because we have them. The, the U.S. government shit. has them. Um, so he starts, you know, he suspects maybe he doesn't know what he's looking at. He doesn't know if it's alive or if it's man-made, but he definitely noticed the straight edge and the type of guy he is instead of you know swimming away he goes right towards it 
and the further it gets towards it, he starts to notice it's not just, it's definitely man, or definitely not a creature, but is very geometric. So he describes this uh, cube, like a large cube that's directly in front of him, and he doesn't notice it right away till it comes into, so he starts swimming towards it, and it's maintaining the distance. So what it's doing is, while he's going towards it, it's moving away from him, but maintaining the exact same distance the entire time. And this you happened- can't close on it. Yeah, and yep. this happened from about 200 feet down to 400 feet so this thing just never got close enough to him but what he did towards the end was turn out the lights and when he turned out the lights he realized that you know the object was given off its own glow and he could suddenly see it clearly and he said it was definitely a, a geometric cube just a cube and uh he says he's he basically described the you know like a primordial fear situation where he just didn't know he he knew what he was looking at wasn't man-made or a creature um, right. Yeah. And he said it was glowing gold, right? Yeah. It was a glow. It was a, basically he described it as being a black backlit and a goldish color, but just giving off a glow that he could see clearly more clearly when he had his lights off versus on, which makes sense. Cause this is, they're probably high powered lights on this rig. And maybe this thing just had a dull glow, but the lights were outshining it. And when he turned them off, like boom, suddenly now it's standing out. Um, but when he stopped and turned off his lights, lo and behold, he was over one of those damn vents. One of the, thermal vents so he quickly moved so he wouldn't get cooked and uh when he turned around he said that thing just shot off into the abyss basically yeah and one thing i i do want to he put a lot of emphasis on this being a diver um when you're that far i guess he was about shin deep into the mud on the ocean floor and you can see all the uh basically the vortices of the mud flowing around you when you're moving along the bottom so it's basically like you know if you're driving down a dirt road and you see all this the dust plume behind your car the same things right. happening on the ocean floor um but when this thing took off it took off at such a speed that it should have kicked up an immense amount of you know debris from the floor and it nothing happened it's almost like <laughs> it was defying physics because this thing was moving through the water almost like a vacuum wow but that just crazy came, that stuff, just came man. out and since all these uh since you know the ufos going back and forth from the sea um you were talking about we didn't really talk about this on the show but you had just been making your own theories based off the uh the school sightings from back in the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. So, like, generally, that's a great story. Good recounting, by the way. Another thing that he he talked about, he was hearing a noise, almost like a, he described it as one of those humongous dump trucks they use at, like, a 3M mine. Yeah. Um, going along the surface. That's what he described hearing. Yeah, he, sound, he said Almost it like, like a, a mining operation. Exactly. He said it sounded like a caterpillar moving boulders. And, uh, yeah. Now, it wasn't just him that heard that it, his partner also heard the sound but you know he never saw what he, he never saw. saw the the object he never saw the cube and before we get into anything else too we need to tie in um the video of the cube that the pilot took up in the air oh yeah there's multiple i've looked at them um we'll link we'll go ahead and link those as well but I'm sure if you're listening to this show, you're familiar with uh, this video already. There's a very one specific one where I think it's an airline pilot, if it's the same one you're thinking about. Um, yep. It's basically up in the front cockpit of this airliner, and this perfect cube basically just floats right past the aircraft. Um, and it is black and gold. Yeah, it's black and gold. and With that bubble around it. Yep, and some of the more recently released Navy footage, I mean, you can clearly see uh, what appears to be a cube in inside of a sphere and that matches the most recent testimony from you know the congressional look into everything and if you think about the way scott 
couldn't close ground on this thing. Like it maintained um, that perfect distance from him the whole time he was moving towards it. I mean, he got close. He said he was within two or three feet of it and just could not close distance to get any closer to it. It's almost like there was a bubble around. Mm-hmm. It would move. If he moved eight inches, it moved eight inches simultaneously. If he moved an inch, it moved an inch. I'm wondering if he moved backwards if it had followed him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure you got to think about it again. I don't want to, I'm not going to. And he has speculate. the footage by the way too. He has the footage. Yeah, he does. Um, <laughs> and he says that it just looks like a light in the footage because of, you know, the the light bouncing off of it. But somebody brought up a really good point. You know, this footage is somewhat old. I think he did it in the, I think, he, I think it was in the early 2000s. It was. Um, yeah. So he has this footage and somebody said to him, hey, you know, you might want to get it to somebody new to take a look at it and see if they can't do something with it and maybe work on it to, to get a clearer image. But he has the footage. He still has it and it's still in his possession. Yeah, so that that definitely, he no, he agreed. He said that's a really good idea because you can do things with older images now and video where you can stabilize them and make them look great. And it's not like uh, it's not like you're altering it in any way as, as far as, uh, you know, adding artifacts to the film, but you're just cleaning it up more or less and getting a better look at it and stabilizing it. And that right. may really, uh, that may be, insane video if, if that gets or I would like to just see the raw footage honestly absolutely I don't even care if it's a light and you know I, I saw some other footage too um, recently of in the ocean too of a light passing under a, a fish that somebody was filming too I mean it basically is like a light um, similar to what he would describe going right underneath the fish and something else interesting and worth mentioning uh, is the way that light travels underwater um, I, I'm going to try to not butcher this but essentially lights underwater um, up up here, you know, you, you, you want to know how many lumens a light has, right? That's, that's how powerful it is, how many lumens it has. Um, but below in the water, it's Kelvin yeah. uh, is, is how it's measured. So it's, it's, it's actually hotter the light, the further it travels. And I think that's worth mentioning. I think that's something worth mentioning when we talk about um, what we've always puzzled about, which is these these lights that are on craft. What's the um, reason for them? <laughs> you know, we talk about yeah, that all the time. Yeah. I hear a lot of stuff. This this bothers me to no end. I hear a lot of stuff about, well, you know, they're hitting around with us and they're they're trying to get us to to advance and you know the the hierarchy of beings and all this other bullshit. I I don't think that I think there's too much of reading into things where there's absolutely no evidence. And I think it's really important to take almost like a Sherlock Holmes type, you know, yeah, look at this stuff. Let's investigate this deductive. Right. Break it down as basic as you possibly can. And the more and more I hear about these things and I think about how quickly they get away and I think about, you know, how far they would have to travel um, to come and, you know, visit this planet, given the laws of physics. I think, and when you look at cases specifically where it's a close encounter of the third kind or above, right, um, all the way up to abduction. If you look at all those cases and you look at a great deal of them, I'm not saying all of them. I cannot saying you won't find an outlier. Okay. But when you look at these cases, sort of kind of like what Garrett said, like the Zimbabwe school, the aerial school, okay, that school in Wales and the other school in Australia. Okay. What do, what do all those locations have in common with them, with each other? They are all very close to water. Yeah. And to play devil's advocate here. You can say, okay, yeah, well, there's water everywhere. But a lot of these, like the schools, for example, those are some of the deepest trenches 
is <laughs> that's what's going on here man you know yeah i mean off the coast of brazil it's the same thing um it's extremely deep water where the amazon comes out into the ocean um off the coast of zimbabwe it's extremely deep off the coast of wales you know it, again an extremely deep water off the coast of australia around where you know that sighting was extremely deep water um you know we were always amazed by uh the fact that we don't get any evidence okay we always hear about military craft chasing them and we never hear about them catching them okay to me and then we, when you factor that into how far they would have to like literally do you think joe alien is coming here on a monday um trying to talk to some school kids in australia and then you know he's jumping through 10 wormholes to have dinner with his wife and kids at home that night you know these these have to be like expeditions almost yeah and the one thing and not to get too blue but like it it could be a long-term study you know where exactly you got to think where's the two places in the world where we aren't it's the it's the two poles and the ocean you know what i mean what better place to hide i ain't saying they on on the back side of the moon or mars you know what i'm saying maybe um but you know just honestly they could be hiding literally under our do not have we do not have the technology to to track an object that is airborne and then goes under and you know these these beings would have to know and honestly we know have to know it seems like we know more about space than we do about our own oceans you know um exactly i mean hell those lights can be bioluminescent i mean you know those super deep water fish that you know they're they're so far from light photons that the only light they make is like they make they create their own light Maybe it could be something to that effect. I don't know. Talk about the tic tac story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. We talk about talk about the drone swarm over top of the aircraft carrier. Talk about all the stuff that goes on on near Catalina. Now, and that's right, very that interesting. Stuff. So we went over, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 cases uh, just in USOs, so unidentified submersible objects that are coming, that are breaching basically the surface of the ocean or, you know, lakes, sometimes even, you know, like quarries. Uh, but either they're coming out of the water or they're going into the water. And uh, one very specific one that I did not know about was, uh, I believe it was Catalina, but you have like a larger ship with the with the smaller ships on it almost yes yeah it's a great great story yeah um where basically there were there was a large mothership with about six saucer-like ships on its back that had surfaced and then the six saucer-like ships took off yeah and this i just i don't want to talk about the story as much as uh the theory you drew from that which i think is awesome and pretty interesting man is that we just don't have the ability to track them if they were you could be tracking them you know with an f-16 if the thing goes underwater game over yeah like i don't know the capabilities of f-22s and f-35s to see things that are underwater i would imagine that there is zero capability to do that you would have to have a you know a naval ship in the area simultaneously as you know something in the air in order to track this it's it's a safe space for them is essentially what it is it is absolutely a safe space and if they move the way we think they can move and the way they manipulate you know space time and and distance you know it would be no big deal for them to transfer into that environment i think they almost move in a vacuum at this point that the more currently you know i change my stance on this all the time but i'm constantly looking at different cases and trying to apply different theories but it it seems like they are moving in the vacuum because just like scott said how there was no dust or you know nothing was kicked up off the bottom of the ocean floor there's there was no dust cloud or plume um it's almost like it the water was they moving make their around own atmosphere it, you know yeah like they make their own atmosphere wherever and they are the, 
displaced matter wherever they are. And how many times have you heard of, you know, cases where you have either a craft coming out of the water or going back into the water where there's absolutely no splash, you know? Right, right. Same thing if they're in the air and they're jumping at speeds that are, you know, like Mach 40, you know what I mean? They would break the sound barrier if they were not moving in the vacuum. And they know our weaknesses. They know our weaknesses. That's why these cases that I'm talking about where they, they don't have any problem appearing to people, any problem, you know, harming people, manipulating people physically, uh, communicating with people, whether it's kids at a school or wherever. Every single time you look at one of those cases, you'll see that they're very close to a huge body. And they know our weaknesses. They know our weaknesses at this point. They know that that is a safe space for them. It's basically like playing hide and seek with a three-year-old. Yeah, now I do want you to get into that you know? theory you were telling me about. So uh, the whole reason I brought up that uh, that mothership situation with the smaller ships on its back over Catalina was because you had speculated to me, I don't know if this is your official stance, but you thought maybe the smaller ones were almost like drones or sensors. And that's extremely right. interesting because if, let's say that's what was happening with Scott, maybe maybe that wasn't a craft, maybe it was some sort of uh, probe or sensor that was like, well, what the hell is the this area. thing down here? Yeah. Swimming Protecting on the bottom the area or where... like, I need to go check it out. And it's almost right. like detecting it. And then what you said about uh, basically the uh, smoke and mirrors, like you're watching the right hand, but don't see what the left hand's doing. Sure. You know, sure. You, and they could, you know, look, look, they're here for, they could be here for a multitude of reasons, but suppose they're here, they're, they're, you know, extracting some kind of mineral or something they need, right? Whether it be DNA or whether it be some kind of mineral that they could be mining from underground. Cause it certainly sounded like they were mining something when, you know, he was underneath there. I mean, you, you can fake a lot of things. You can fake a lot of things visually, but you know, things sound like what they, they sound like. Yeah. If, I, if you're yeah. mining something, that's what else could that be? And I don't want to go too crazy off topic right now, man, but I got to bring this up because I know we have a listener that's going to be listening to this. Uh, I just talked to my brother-in-law and he was very concerned about the Isle Royale show we, in the mining. <laughs> he says we have to revisit it, but uh, he has some, he, he finds it very hard to believe that aliens would come here and make the Native Americans mine copper. And I'm like, well, that's not what we were trying to say. Um, I believe that the Native Americans definitely mined copper, but I think that huge mine, I don't think that was Native Americans. I, I believe something else no, happened there. Yeah. For one. Now, why would they, why would they wait around for Native Americans to do that? Yeah. They, they obviously have better ways of harvesting that resource. But just the, his main concern was why would they come here to mine copper when they, when they, there's asteroids flying around that are made completely of copper. Well, maybe I'm just, I'm just saying right now, Glenn, maybe that's because they ain't in space. <laughs> right. You know, that, maybe that could be the it. Ocean. And then that could be it. And then also, you know, how hard is it to harness an asteroid? Yeah. It's gotta be rough. <laughs> I, I don't know. Right. Well, well then, seriously, what's the difference, right? You got to catch the asteroid and you've got them. You got to match it, speed, same somehow thing, stabilize right? it and then manage to mine it while it's traveling millions of miles an but hour. You, I don't know. But you could be in the great lakes based in the Great Lakes and, you know, have a source of copper close by that you could continuously mine. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. But uh, he, he no, was it's, very it's, concerned. He says we have to revisit that. And also he appreciates all the uh, the movie ideas from our movie show. 
Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, no, no, I I mean, I get his point. Um, I don't, I personally don't know because why would I know? But I don't know which one's harder. <laughs> is it harder to, to, you know, mine copper off an asteroid or is it, is it easier to mine it in, you know, off a planet where you can sort of kind of camp out and, you know, do it over time? And I don't, you know, who knows what equipment's needed to do that, you know? So he has an excellent point. I don't, I don't know which one's easier. Yeah. But, but I had to bring I, that up. I definitely, about the I definitely, operation. yeah, I definitely do not think that they were putting the Native Americans to work. I don't think that's really what went on. Although, you know, there are a lot of Native American legends and mysteries about sky people. Well, we talked about a few of um, those and some of the accounts, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a very good question. Um, I simply don't know which one's easier, but I know that that amount of copper that was taken out of there is an incredible amount of copper, and maybe there's something to that particular um, makeup of that copper maybe the copper that's on the earth is more conductive than something that would be um you know have different isotope levels in it yeah that'd be flying around space or maybe magnetization like you know you know yeah i don't know enough about it i I i'm not a geologist right so but excellent point um yeah, I, I just think for whatever reason they're here, which, you know, none of this is going to shed any light on. Why are, why are aliens here? Why are we being visited? Um, maybe they've been here all along. You know, maybe they've always been in the ocean. Maybe they were here before we started walking the earth. You know, maybe they maybe this is where they live. I, just, yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know. So, but all that stuff that you need to, you need to consider. Um, you know, we always hear this narrative about they're visiting from other galaxies. Like, it's the whole galaxy argument, right? Well, you you know, they, they're obviously not here in our galaxy. And if you think about, you know, the laws of physics, how long it would take them to get here, you know, they'd be 300 years old before they got here and all that other good bullshit. Well, not if they're here already. Yeah. But essentially, you know, ants walk around all the time wondering about us, right? I mean, they get stepped on and wow, you know, the other day, 20 of us got stepped on, you know, or 20 of us got crushed. We don't know how. They don't ever know how they get crushed, right? But we're walking right above them. We, they just don't see us. They're not even aware of us, you you know, that we are completely off their radar. They're not running from humans. They don't worry about it. They're out looking for sugar and stuff to eat. And that's what they're doing, right? To, you know, taking it back to the anthill, finding stuff to take back to the anthill. Yeah, I mean, but it's, I, imagine just the, the average Joe, you know what I mean? So wrapped up in his own rat race. They're not conceiving like other shit going on around them, you know? I mean, that's exactly. like that's like 90% of everybody. But it's just amazing to me how ballsy they are near large large bodies. This is where you get these stories of... Of, you know they they communicated they you know reached out and gave a speech about the environment <laughs> you know th- this is where you hear it it's always near deep water <coughs> that's the pattern that i see yeah specifically um, for these you know close encounters of the third kind like you were saying yeah and if you look at some of these craft that like the craft that was just recently um videoed over brazil okay um it sort of kind of looks like a god i'm trying to think of what a good way to describe that object would be. it looks like a plane with rounded edges is really what it looks like when you look at that shape that is not an aerodynamic shape yeah we talked what about that it. is it looks more like fluid dynamic a shape to travel <laughs> through right yeah it's a, a shape to travel through water is what it looks like to me yeah to so, me it looks like some uh almost like some ahab shit from like <laughs> yeah it does it looks you know it looks like cat it looks like captain nemo exactly invented this thing yeah i mean <coughs> 
It just does. So, you know, you, you talk about that. You talk about how everybody talks about how intense these lights are and how much heat they give off when one does get close to them. Well, maybe that's because those lights have to work underwater and Kelvin is what works underwater for light, not, you know, lumens. That could be it too. Maybe there's an aspect to the water that cools down whatever propels their machine, you know? Yeah. It just seems, it's just such a convenient, like we are clueless, right? We don't know where they come from. We can't track them. We send out our F-35s. They can't find them, right? You know, and those damn things can hover. You send out the the whatever to go find these things and we can't find Where did they go? Yeah. What did they do? Fly back to Alpha Centauri? Yeah. Where are they going to fly back every every single time? They've got a safe space. They just go underwater. We can't find them. And if all we this Pentagon approved shit is true, we have one, and we've gotten to the hole. We finally breached the hole to this thing, and there's, again, no visible means of propulsion. How the hell are these things getting around, you know? Right, right. Although, I don't I don't know whether those things are... They could be manipulated by beams from a mothership or something along those lines. You know, I, I know that's fascinating that there's no means of propulsion, but I don't, I don't find it that fascinating. There's obviously some means of moving it around, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, is it... Le- it's less important to figure out what that is. Maybe it's more important for the military, but, you know, we obviously know they burn, right? So what's more important? Knowing why they're here and what they want or knowing how they, they get here? Yeah. You know, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's... you got the, we're, we're trying to look at this from a deductive standpoint, right? So you got the who, what, where, when, why, and how. The how, I mean, as fascinating as that is, ain't as important as the where. You know, when is obviously yeah. we're there. Who? I mean, who the hell are they? I don't know. I think this is way more basic. And here's the other thing, too. They can obviously, in these situations where it's third kind or above, right, um, they can obviously breathe our atmosphere. That's unusual, right? Why are they so concerned with the planet? Is it for benevolent reasons or is it for selfish reasons? This is a great stop off for them to, you know, go to the next place they need to go to. Yeah. They can live here in our oceans. This, we, we're basically like a resort area for them, you know, if they do live in our ocean. And like you said, you know, not, I think it's 96% now of the ocean has never really been studied. Okay. I mean, it's the perfect hiding spot. It's just the perfect hiding spot, no matter how you slice it. Exactly. And I know you know a lot more about this subject than we can actually talk about. Yeah, I have a, I have a personal <laughs> experience for sure. Um, yeah. I'm not saying but, I, you know, yeah, I don't even want to get into it because no can't. you can't so yeah so i mean it's just you would need and here's the other thing too the other problem with this is we've put up so many satellites at this point so much nasa equipment in space okay that leaving the earth and coming to the earth you're probably more likely to be seen than you are when you're inside the atmosphere yeah, it's very true the coming and going with that whole array of satellites up there and nasa equipment and all that other good stuff you know that's a problem too you know and maybe smarter people than us with more data than us has put this together and realized that yeah okay this thing you know was over the coast of uh you know off the coast of california and then it zipped away well you know look at the satellite data do we have anything flying off the coast of you know california and at the same time on the satellite data on our spy satellites i mean so there's smarter people yeah you think people that, that have, have the way more data those resources would definitely have cross-referenced it that cross-referenced yeah. that no absolutely unless they went in the Absolutely. ocean you know and then and right. then what unless we have and the other thing is there. too this that that could be what all this elf stuff is this extreme low frequency stuff that we have that nobody can really explain why we have it 
Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, all these arrays that uh, drive the whales crazy with, you know, the low-frequency noise, that, that could be part of the reason for that weapons development or whatever it is. It's not a weapon, whatever they're saying it is. Yeah, they're saying, yeah, well, if we're talking about that firefighter, he says it's about five or six different things. It's a weapon, <laughs> it's an earthquake machine, it's a, uh, it's a radar for UFOs. Or firefighter plumber, Eric. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, get <clears throat> just circling back, I just think, we really at this point have more evidence that they're here on the earth than we have that they're coming and going i i'm tending to agree when man. you just look at I raw data right uh and, and that's not you... some that's not an idea i i've long held it's it's a recent it's a recent discovery i always knew about usa but i never speculated until very recently maybe they're, they maybe they're just here and another another thing too is that puerto rican object the object off puerto rico that kind of went through the air and then right through the water and didn't lose any speed yeah or anything along those lines that kind of got me thinking down that road too but i think we're developing a pattern or so i think that's kind of what we're seeing i i also am just some things about the ufo subject just drive me crazy the whole they can read our minds they can do this they can you know all these big names like eric weinstein and you know like all these physics guys studying this you know and coming out with this well they're obviously a hierarchy of beings and all this other good bullshit maybe it's a lot more simpler maybe they're here to figure out how to eliminate us maybe they're here to harvest our resources maybe they're here on a long-term study as you know to wire these pink monkeys so violent maybe whatever it is but i don't think it's as as woo and high-minded as everybody thinks it is yeah i i just and, try to look at it as you know I, I have a background in anthropology from college maybe they're just here on different missions maybe there's maybe there's not one single mission maybe they're here for a whole list of things um maybe it's right. maybe it's uh you know to harvest our dna maybe it's to mine maybe it's uh just to study us maybe it's to prevent us from nuking each other i don't know and i'm not going to speculate but i I just assumed that there's multiple reasons they're here. And I believe there's, that's why we have a, so many different types of reports of different types of craft. Maybe those craft shapes and types are specific to whatever mission or, you know, I mean, uh, I've definitely talked about that with you. I don't think I've mentioned it to the show, but we're right. just two guys right. that we just got two pieces of awesome news, the Lakatsky interview. And we got this interview from uh, Scott Cassell. I mean, we're just trying to just going through the timeline. Yeah. We're just going through the timeline, trying to put it together. Yeah, we talk about the the murder board thing, but you know, you got you know, we're throwing some yarn up on that board and we're trying to connect it. <laughs> Yeah, more more yarn than uh, you know your great grandmother has. I mean, it's it's unreal. But yeah, I, there's so many. The other thing is too, you know, why are they so sneaky? Why why is it so sneaky? Why is it so covert? Why do they? They obviously know that we know they're here. We obviously know that you know the government may say they don't exist and all that other dumb bullshit that's kind of fallen by the wayside, which is great. But why the secrecy? If they're so far advanced, why the secrecy? You know? Yeah, I don't know. And the other thing, the other thing thing too is um you know there was all these rumors about how we did something in the 40s and our radar got advanced to the point where um we may have been knocking them out of the sky you know you, you hear drips and drabs of that maybe that's another reason why they they travel via yeah and you know we kind of speculated that in a private conversation you know i believe that we have something that can hurt them and maybe we don't even know it um 
it may be a microwave situation or it could be radar or some sort of waves but maybe they're not maybe they're being so covert because they're being extra cautious right you know radar changed in the 40s i know that radar really got advanced and changed in the 40s there were a lot of changes in the 40s and that seems to be when there were a lot of crashes so maybe you know before then they had been coming here in a certain type of craft and had you know complete um freedom in the skies okay and then something changed that so maybe they've had to re-engineer their craft to go you know travel via water yeah you know get here look for the radar detect where it is you know get around it and then travel to where you need your destination underwater i just think more and more as you go through this um them being based in water and traveling in water explains a lot of the holes a lot of the mysteries and what i was getting at with the secrecy is they're obviously here they know where we know they're here yet they're still not coming forward is it because they're harvesting something in the ocean and they don't want us to know what they're doing down there and what they're getting it may not be anything that we need you know it may not be anything important yeah um but if you look at the things that are getting harvested right a lot of females um you know are implanted if you go full woo in this right a lot of females are implanted with fetuses and then they come back and they get the fetus after it grows past a certain time a lot of cattle are mutilated in different parts of their body and examples you know samples of their dna are taken or harvested um so a lot of attacks on females a lot of attacks on what we think of as food you know and like um, it seems like they're super interested in their reproductive organs you know right so so maybe they're just here to rape rape our planet and you know that's that could be their reason for their concern or concern could be selfish completely selfish in nature why people keep thinking they're benevolent is just there's no evidence there's zero evidence that these things are benevolent yeah there's no evidence of them coming down and fixing a field of oh crops. i know and there's everybody no comes evidence. to the a lot of the super space brother pushers will say like you know well if they wanted to hurt us they they have the technology they could have annihilated us by now not necessarily <laughs> maybe not maybe not if that's the limit of what they can do at Kolaris, yeah you know and, and you know civilization civilizations develop in different ways right i mean maybe you know we have projectile bullets and guns and nukes right maybe they maybe they developed in a different way and they their technology went down a different road maybe they figured out you know maybe they don't have gravity from where where they're from so you know they had to design their ships a different way to deal with not having gravity so their baseline was we've got no gravity you know mm-hmm. we've got to figure out how to propel stuff <laughs> through maybe they're from a planet initially or originally that is like a water planet like a set uh net Neptune's, Neptune. Neptune's moon or whatever that's yeah. you know what is it Titan it's all water but maybe there's yep. maybe they're from somewhere that's all water and they're better in water than they are in the atmosphere exactly exactly you know you, you got to stop reading into um you got to stop with these um grandiose they can read our mind all that uh, perfect example of that is the tic-tac story okay Raver talks about the tic-tac story and he talks about how this thing wound up at the rally point and they were just thinking about it they didn't they didn't tell you know they didn't say over the over over the you know over radio communication where their rally point was going to be. you remember that part of I the do. story and he completely read into the fact that they must have been able to read their minds maybe that was a fucking coincidence <laughs> right because there is absolutely 
absolutely no evidence that they can that there's beings from outer space that can read our mind. There's absolutely no evidence that there are beings from outer space that are benevolent. Okay, and the other the the only other theory is the future humans coming back theory. That still doesn't ring true for me. But again, it's it's you know a, a theory that could be there could be something to it. The reason it doesn't ring true for me is why wouldn't they just say that? You know, we came back because you guys are, look, we came back. You're going to fuck the planet up. Keep going down this route. Another 200 years of, you know, fossil fuels and you're all fucking dead and we don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't they just be sure? Why are they always hinting about it? Right. And I, I definitely think that we've scared them. I, I, I definitely think that when we've flown after them and they look at our nukes and they see our nuclear capabilities, how do they know that a fighter plane doesn't have a fucking nuke? Yeah. They don't know. Well, and that's, they don't that's know. what I was telling you too. If they were, imagine, imagine that you're, I don't know, that you just. You land on some, you know, strange island with a strange people. Yeah. Or, or you know what, even, let's take aliens out of the equation, all right? You have, let's just say you walk up on a two-year-old, right? You're like, okay, you're just a little toddler or something. And you look a little bit closer. You notice, he's got, he, you notice that he's got like a Beretta. That's terrifying, man. <laughs> That's <laughs> terrifying if you walk up on that, you know, because either this kid could possibly hurt you or himself. But you, you just realize this is a toddler with not, not like a squirt gun or a cap gun, but like a full on Kimber, you know? And right. <laughs> and it's, that's terrifying, man. Um, Absolutely. And at the same time, that same two year old, you can take a quarter, put it between your two fingers and put it up to their ear real fast and tell them you pulled it out of the rear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or, you know, right, because you're more advanced in some ways, you know, or, or it's noontime and you put a, you know, a little dish of macaroni in front of them and they're like, oh shit, they must have read my mind because I was hungry. No, it's just lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's time for you to eat. I don't know. I don't have much experience with toddlers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's so many things, but if, if you're a listener and you have some theories or you want to counter anything, I mean, feel free to let us know because we want to we yeah, talk, love to hear your we talk about it. Yeah, and we're going to present some more cases that we feel uh, demonstrate the, you know, the possibility uh, that, that back up that hypothesis. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I may look at because you know, there are more in Antarctica and, you know, the Arctic as well, just because yeah. I think that's also yeah. a possibility because they can only be in places where we're not. And humans are everywhere except on those poles and in the ocean. Obviously, the exactly. moon, but you know, but I want to concentrate on Earth. Yeah, and I think it's a theory worth pursuing. And at the same time, I would urge everybody to dumb this, to, uh, dumb it down. And if you take anything from this, <laughs> stop episode, with the woo. <laughs> stop with the they can read our minds. Stop with their benevolent space brothers. Drop all that shit that affects the way you think about us and it frames your opinion. Drop it all and just simply look at the data. Look at what we do know and then go from there and come up with your own theories definitely check out that that's video. the way to do it everybody we're gonna link it for real we're actually gonna link it definitely look at that video because that's bizarre that is so bizarre i hope it's there yeah i mean that would be crazy if they yeah. smash it down but it's been up for a while anyway so yeah but it was a, it was a uh it's an interesting theory we'll see how it pans out and i'm a, i am in no way cool. like reserving myself to this one theory but as of right now it's looking real good how one thing we're know? not going to talk about one thing we're absolutely not going to talk about is fucking Atlantis. <laughs> you know, I had, I almost brought that up earlier and I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going <laughs> yeah, to grand hand this, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Great show, buddy. All right. Hey, hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving.
boy.